Today on Rebuilders, we start by looking at a bit of a trend that seems to be beginning mm. um, in in churches in Australia. And then we head where, Mark? Well, I think there's something happening in Australia that I think is a hopeful portent, not just for Australia, but for mm. all the different countries represented in our listenership. Uh, there is so much tumult and chaos and crisis in the world. But actually, what if in the midst of this, there is one of the great evangelistic opportunities opening up uh, that we're going to experience in our lifetime? And how do we be attuned to that? Excellent. It's a great episode. Let's get into it. Welcome to Rebuilders. My name's Liddy and I'm here with Mark and Daniel. How are you both? Great. Thank you. Mark, how are you? I'm good, thank you. It's good. I saw Christmas decorations going up. Mm. Oh, yeah. Near my street, yeah. I was in David Jones in the city on Saturday. A department store. I was in a department (laughs) store. Do they exist? Um, Oh, and it is fully decked out. Wow. There is no mistaking that retail um, is ready for Christmas. Put a ban on you the other day playing... Christmas music. I before. wasn't playing Christmas music. I was singing, singing it. Yeah. None mm. of that before the 1st of December. Well, the please. thing is, Daniel, as part of my job, I'm already working on a lot of Christmas related <laughs> things. So I just feel like it's too need- bad. 1st of December is when I'm, I allow it. Well, to, I refuse. My, my, <laughs> my son wanted to listen to Colin Buchanan Christmas <laughs> the other day. I'm like, nope. Waiting till December. Ah. Oh. Mm. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Look, I'm happy to sing Christmas songs with him. All right. Well, he can go hang out with you. Cool. Um, I did want to just quickly bring up on behalf of a listener, um, an American listener. Yeah. How do we feel about uh, the incredible Australian film, The Castle? Oh, Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, I I quite enjoy it. One of my favourite actors who uh, is no longer with us, Bud Tingwell, who played the High Court. Um, ah. Judge, I yeah, I always really liked Bud Tingwell. Well, it also was a parable for sort of uh, land rights. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so for those who don't know, so The Castle is a movie about a sort of classic Australian suburban working class family whose house is attempted to be taken off them for a big development and they yeah. go to the high court, which is like the Supreme Court if you're an American. And, um, but it's, it's a sort of very clever analogy to what a lot of Indigenous Australians, you know, experienced and mm. it's a it's a parallel to that. Hmm. So mm. that's the background. But, yeah, it's an Australian classic. Oh, it Absolute is. classic. It is. I remember because one of the things in it is they, like, they go on a holiday to Bonnie Doon. Yep. And growing up in South Australia, I didn't even know if that was a real place. <laughs> I now live in Melbourne and Bonnie Doon is a real place. It is it's a, a real, real place. place. I was there. Went through there like a week ago, two weeks ago. Ah, mm. Great place. Go. Yeah. Going to Bonnie Doon. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's some very quotable lines yeah. from yeah, that yeah. film. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I, was, I did listen to a, a recent interview with Rob Sitch, who's the director, mm. and he said there's a number of things that his dad, like Rob's dad, used to do that he, uh, like, incorporated, incorporated into the film. Like, yeah. the, um, the, like, oh, boys. You don't know what how good your mum is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, is it, what does he say? Um Oh, what have you done with it? Like talking well, what, about what, the, what have you done? What's for dinner? Oh, Results. yeah, but it's what you've done with it. Anyway. It's what you've done with it, love. Anyway, yeah. yes, well, very welcome Australian. To, yeah. Welcome to our international listeners who have fast-forwarded to this point. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. There you go. Yeah, well, thank you for your question, listener. Lawrence. Lawrence. Lawrence, are you a fan? 
Has Lawrence mm. said whether they're a fan? Uh, he, I'm not sure. He doesn't, he doesn't state whether just, he is or not. Just asked. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks for he the question. He did ask if we could withhold pastries chat for a little bit to talk about the castle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Well, we have just spoken about the castle, which is uh, an Australian phenomenon, uh, part of our cultural uh, – it's a cultural icon. Anyway, there's another thing happening locally that mm. um, might be speaking to something that is greater that is occurring yeah. in our society. And the world. And the mm. world. What might that be? Well, it was, it was interesting. We I, I saw some research this week which um, – I guess was the sort of evidence of a trend that I'm noticing. Mm. And, uh, you know, at Rebuilders, we get lots of people sending in messages and, mm-hmm. you know, we have lots of different churches that, you know, talk to us. And sort of in the background, this has been this really interesting thing. It just sort of started after the pandemic, but it seems to be growing. Uh, is, is it a wave yet? No. Uh, but the phenomenon of ordinary unchurched Australians mm. with no church background um, turning up sort of cold turkey to churches and coming to faith. Really yeah. interesting. So it sort of would come from people just like, I'm checking this out, to people just rocking up. And look, you know, Australia is quite a secular place um, and uh, this is sort of quite a new phenomenon. I mean, mm. obviously there's always people sort of rocking up and, you know, checking things out. But the frequency has risen. Mm. And, uh, you know, we're getting reports from sort of country churches who have not had anyone come to faith in years and all of a sudden uh, baptising multiple people and mm. multiple people coming to faith. And, you know, I've just sort of been watching this trend in the background. I saw on Instagram an um, uh, image just comes up in, you know, they send you a million algorithms. Um, and it was of a, you know, Australian rules, former Australian rules footballer oh, yeah. who is – your classic Australian who would not go to church and, you know, is probably his lifestyle does not align with um, one of following in the way of Jesus closely. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, this 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 guy was taking a photo of him at a sort of, you know, large contemporary church. And I almost sort of fell off my chair seeing this because this is just so unusual in Australia to see. Mm. And, you know, he basically, you know, had his mates in the um, – you know, uh, comments going, what are you doing, mate? You know, what are you turning up at this place for? And he's like, he basically said something filled with lots of swearing, so I won't use all the swearing, which made it even more interesting <laughs> that, you know, he sort of said, you know, the world is so beep and, you know, everything's beeped up mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> Daniel's putting these incredible beeps in, um, <laughs> uh, you know, and he just said, you know, everything's beeped, why not just give this a go? Interesting. Uh, so, that, so that captures what I'm trying to speak about here, that there's almost this sense that, as the sort of cultural script and promises goes off track, that there's an openness. Now, mm. the research which sort of I then, my ears pricked up because often you get anecdotal evidence like I've just described, but then you see something, okay, something's happening here where it's more mm. sort of quantitative um, and uh, qualitative or whatever. You see research. <laughs> um, so McCrindle, who um, did great research here in Australia, um, basically put a, a little sort of report out about trust, and in institutions. Okay. And what I said is that basically uh, Australia has seen a dramatic dwindling in trust and this is happening all across the world. So this is not unique to Australia. Mm. Australians probably had a higher trust in government and big business and institutions than a lot of other Western countries. Yeah. Uh, but what's happened just in the last sort of, you know, year or so, whatever, that's rapidly declined. So Qantas, which is, you know, the Australian air carrier, which has long held this 
fond place in the Australian heart, part mm. of our national identity. Um, all of a sudden we're seeing last year people turning on that institution. Yes. Uh, the new government which has come in, um, you know, began with you know, quite a massive win. So we had a, a centre-left government, Labor government came in, which is equivalent to Labor in Britain, Labor in New Zealand, Democrats in America uh, came in. Um, and, uh, you know, big majority, but very quickly uh, the polls are turning negative against mm -hmm. them. So what it said is that, uh, you know, 47% of Australians had lost their trust in the Australian government during this time period in the last three years. Um, it also said a parallel decline in trust is observed in mainstream media, so 47% and large corporations. So what's happening is that Australians are very rapidly losing trust in government, mm. media, and large corporations. And this is, sorry, just to no, interrupt, um, this is pretty consistent with what we've been talking about for a yes. number of years of that yes. movement away from um, institutions and moving more into like yes. networked, smaller cells of power yes. interacting with one another. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Part of the story we've been telling yeah. in this. And probably a lot of people would hear this and go, oh, I'm from America or, you know, wherever, of course, that makes sense. But yes. Britain. But – I think Australians have been slower on this yeah. and, you know, we tend to be more trusting of, you know, governments and yep. institutions. Um, but what is fascinating, and this is what mm. caught my attention, so none of that was new, that was very ordinary. So Australians, however, have displayed a resurgence of trust in religious institutions mm. with 21% uh, expressing faith in local churches and 19% in broader church community over the last three years. The resurgence of trust in religious institutions reflects a renewed quest for meaning, values, and community, offering these institutions an opportunity to engage with the evolving beliefs and needs of Australians. So what I'm talking about here is what McCrindle's research is telling us is that in our nation, uh, the trust in institutions has gone down, but an effect of that is people are sort of looking around, where else can I trust? And there has been a rising of uh, trust in religious institutions. Now, wow. some might hear these statistics there and go, well, it's still low compared to trust in governments. But for Australia, yeah. <laughs> traditionally, going all the way back to European settlement, there's been a very low trust in religious institutions. Australians have often been described as having a very negative view of religion mm. and the church. So I find it fascinating that there is this resurgence because I think what you've seen in, in you know, most sort of Western developed countries is – an overarching lack of trust. So mm. let me explain this because I think this would be very surprising, particularly to people in the United States um, who has seen this overarching decline in, in, in trust in institutions and particularly the church has been part of that. You know, mm. there's been so much conversations around the death of cultural Christianity, deconversion, deconstruction, you know, all of this stuff going on, you know, particularly since COVID and, and different cultural issues and, and recent elections. The difference I say, would say between Australia and America is, you know, I remember going to 10 years ago, going into a Starbucks uh, in Nashville. I mean, it's always trying as a Melbourne to go to a Starbucks, but uh, going to a Starbucks <laughs> and um, seeing that there was everyone was reading a Christian book, having a Bible study. Yeah. Or, you know, so there was this sort of sense that that was, there was a normative cultural Christianity. And in a sense, that has gone into decline and, you know, trust in religious institutions has dropped. Mm -hmm. I think what the difference with Australia is, is that it began low. Yes. <laughs> so there's very little trust there to begin with. But what it shows is that people are being uh, having their trust in where they usually looked for for answers diminished, but they're looking to new places mm. for um, 
uh, you know, answers, uh, which is really interesting. So I think that what I like about the McCrindle report is this that they've they've outlined there that there is actually an opportunity. Mm. There's an opportunity there. So I think we need to look at this in the context of, you know, why is this happening? And, you know, what can we learn about this? I don't want this podcast just to be an Australian reflection here. We know we know that most of our audience is, is global and the majority outside of Australia. Yep. So I think this says, though, something that is worth of note outside of just the Australian context. There is a lot of chat because we're in a culture war of which way are things going? Is the history going towards we're going to be more progressive or is the history going to be, you know, is the future going to be more conservative? And I think that one thing that people fail to note is that there is a story being told and, and the story is told in recent elections. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we just had an election in New Zealand and Jacinda Ardern's uh, government, Labor government, she'd already quit. But, uh, you know, Chippy Hipkins, our, our mate, mm. um, the current or former prime minister who took over from Jacinda Ardern, the Labor centre-left government lost and the Conservatives mm. came to power. So you see results like that and already there are op-eds going, this shows that there's a global move to the right. However, around the same time in Poland, uh, Poland's had uh, for some time a, a quite conservative uh, government uh, and Donald Tusk, who's a sort of former EU uh, uh, politician, ran against the sort of further right conservative party and won. Mm. So then there was other sort of op-eds going, oh, no, we're going to have this. There's now pushback against this move to the right. Um, and, you know, the question then is, well, which way is history heading? And I think the real answer is, is that when you look, and it's quite remarkable, if you get there's certain websites which tell you all of the major uh, leaders around the world and their current polling. Yeah. Okay. And whether it's from South Korea to Japan to France to Canada to the United Kingdom to America is almost every leader is in horrendous negative polling territory doesn't matter whether they're right or left wing. And I think that what this is saying is that there is a global frustration with whoever is in power. And what that's telling us is these elections, you know, we just had in Australia, um, you know, uh, a little while ago now, a couple of months, but, you know, a, a vote around Indigenous recognition in the constitution mm. and called The Voice. At the beginning, the polling was the majority of Australians uh, were for this. Mm. Uh, but then by the time you got to the actual vote, it ended up being soundly defeated. And you saw about two months before, if you look at the polling, um, the government who's just come in, the the new centre-left Labor government just came in on a sort of large majority. Yeah. All of a sudden, polling went against them because why? Because cost of living crisis started mm-hmm. to hit, interest rates went up, inflation. Yeah. And almost the sort of fate of this poll was was sealed at this point. Now, is that the only reason? No. In a massive complex country, there's never monocles of reasons why something gets defeated. But what happened was, I think, you know, a really important part of our national story ended up, in a sense, getting hijacked by a protest vote. You know, yes. and I think that's tragic for what that vote was actually about. But it tells us something bigger that's happening in the world is the overall mood is protest. What people mm-hmm. are seeing is, in a sense, in 2016 with, you know, elections going in different directions than we expected, Donald Trump, Brexit, uh, various elections around the world, is we went into this sort of zone of crisis and people saw that as something which, uh, was going to be a temporary blip yeah. uh, on where they thought history was going. Mm. COVID, uh, but then Ukraine war. We now have Hamas's attack on Israel. 
and uh, the ongoing economic crisis, the environmental problems not going away. You know, yeah. like all of these, this is everything we've talked about, cascading crises banging into each other. And I think the difference that we're seeing is we started talking about a lot of these issues a couple of years ago on this podcast when there yeah. were issues on the horizon is they're here now mm-hmm. and these are now entrenched. And I think I said it may have said it last week, you're seeing governments now moving from here's the better future we have for you of more to how do we stop the apocalypse coming? Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah. so so I, I think that this is this is something that is driving the stories that we have been told. People are rapidly losing faith in them. Mm. Um, you know, that's that's the moment at we need to be attentive to this. So is it like I suppose part of what I'm hearing though is there's a story or a narrative that we've kind of you know, existed in or under, saw, seen the world by over the last couple of decades, um, which has largely been shaped by politics, yes. institutions, these kind of things. You're kind of saying, right, we're seeing the erosion of that. Yes. And where there's new stories mm. on the horizon, p- potential for new stories to be kind of mm. – reintroduced or written is that kind of yeah i mean just to use american politics very quickly to tell the evolution of that story you know bill bill clinton comes in and and his sort of campaign um uh sort of mantra is you know devised by james carville his sort of democratic strategist was it's the economy stupid and basically the idea was let's it was a center-left party Mm. You know, and Clinton was sort of from that 60s baby boomer, change the world generation. But he's now like, yeah. hey, we're just going to do the economy. Like, we're just going to make your lives materially better, mm. right? So what happened was the vision of of Western economies, uh, sorry, Western politics brought the horizon down from changing the world to we're just going to put money in your paycheck and you'll be happy, right? Um, people weren't happy. <laughs> and- mm-hmm. uh, uh, then you you fast forward to uh, Barack Obama comes in, and I think he instinctively understood that people's horizons wanted to be lifted somewhat. Mm. There'd been the period where George W. Bush had got engaged in wars. There'd been nine eleven, and um, you know his sort of mantra is, or state you know campaign slogan is hope, and yes we can. Yeah. And so you have a generation coming of age, and this is probably your guys' generation um, of emerging, where. Um, you know, so you can have the good economy, but also we can hope for a better world, you mm. know. And even if you think about that very iconic uh, Obama campaign poster of him sort of looking upwards. Yep. Mm. Now, the interesting thing is that I think Obama instinctively understood the, you know, and he got he got like uh, quite a significant, he came out of nowhere in, in many ways, beat Hillary Clinton in the primaries, wins the general election. And, um, you know, it captured a lot of people. A lot of people who voted Republican came across. You know, it's quite an incredible sort of election win. Um, but I think in some sense he, he released something he didn't understand. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, Obama, that was his electoral campaign, but I think Obama was very much a classic sort of technocratic manager. He's quite a cerebral guy. And um, his idea of what that looks like was sort of a slow move towards a better future. And he mm-hmm. was interested in a lot of these things. But- he also was a very you know, rationalist, mm. and um, but he'd he'd unleashed a deeper desire for change 
in people and particularly in an emerging generation, your guys' mm. generation. And they were like, cool, all oh, right, this this is the direction history is now going. And he quoted, you know, he, he quoted Martin Luther King's, you know, sort of the arc of history bends towards, you know, progress or justice or whatever. Um, and the sort of message there was, um, and I think Martin Luther King had sort of taken that from, you know, earlier sort of American philosophy and the pragmatists, I think, or whatever they're called. Um, but that was then the story. The story was you're going to get economically better and as a world we're going to get nicer and we're going to get more just mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. and we can do this. There's hope. You can mm -hmm. do this. Yeah. And I think there was almost though a sort of the vacuum in people's sense of wanting meaning, wanting hope, almost wanting a sort of theological answer through politics that, yeah, that started yeah. a movement, yeah. you know, because – Obama's thing was like, yeah, we're going to do this electorally. He understood the the lay of the land. But then movementally, all these different movements kick off. Oh, well, yeah, we want more. So he raised the expectations. Um, and then the expectations don't get met. What happens is Obama wins and then the global financial crisis happens in 2008. He comes into a world where the economy is not getting better. In fact, the system has been shown as incredibly corrupt. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden he's got a crisis on his hands. These reoccurring problems of American life, of racism, you know, is, is race or a number of, you know, high profile. The, the digital cell phone means that these instances of police brutality or whatever can be captured. Mm. And all of a sudden, the sort of promise of yes, we can is people are going, yeah, okay, you said you're going to do stuff about this, but it's sort of this technocratic, neoliberal, move things to a better world. So it's neoliberal with a sort of an updated moral categories of, you know, sure, how do yeah, we have yeah, a, yeah. you know, yeah. we'll just raise the horizon a little bit. And then what has happened since then is the economy isn't getting better. Uh, Obama pivoted away from the Middle East and from wars, but then ISIS kick off. Terrorism comes to places like, mm -hmm. you know, France and, and, and England and, you know, all over the world through ISIS's sort of period of attacks. And everyone's like, hang on, okay, the message is not here, but we're still going to hope. We're mm. still going to hope. Yeah. And this holding on to hope, yet the reality of the world and the inability of the smart people, very much what Obama, you know, and people like Ben Rhodes behind him was like, the smart people have taken over, we're going to make the world better and it doesn't get better. Yeah. And then Trump is in many ways, I think, you know, a symptom, not a cause, you know, against this. It's not a blip and we were heading in a direction. Like this was the underlying stuff coming up. And then in some sense, the crises begin to happen when, the public makes protest votes and then things still don't change. Yeah. So Trump comes in and many of the existing problems are still there. You know, similar things, I think, you know, in Australia, we, we've had the Conservatives in for a long time and people getting frustrated with them. And then we elect a Labor government and then hang on, inflation's still here. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is now in a connected world, we're not as are able to control things in our countries yes. and the forces that we're dealing with are massive. You know, so Australia could go completely carbon zero, but if China and Russia and the United States don't change, it's not going to affect us. You know, mm -hmm. so like mm -hmm. uh, the economic of what other countries do with their currency or global trade or a pandemic coming out of another country massively affects us. So there's this sense like, hang on, we're not as in control as we thought. And the story, which is exactly what you said, which we had imbibed, that mm. hope, yes, you can, you're going to be economically uh, well off, you're going to be morally part of a great thing that we're doing. It's like we have just been punched again and again. We've gotten yeah. up and we just get knocked down again. And I think we're coming to the end of a phase that began. So the 2016 was the interruption of that story, realizing like, hang on, this thing's on the skids here. 
I think where we are in 2023, and particularly in the US, like we're you know heading towards an election where the majority of the people don't want those two candidates. Mm. That's quite unusual. Uh, you've got in Britain heading you know, to a general election where the Labor Party is, obviously the uh, Conservative Party is very unpopular and Labor will get in, but will Labor be able to change things? Mm. John Gray, the philosopher, said the crisis in Britain will come when Labor gets in and then people will realise they're not able to change things. Um, and so, yeah, I think what we're seeing now is it's, take, it's it taken some time for that story to be really questioned, but I think we're entering, and we will be talking about this for ages, mm. yeah, yeah. but we're at the point now where I think your average punter in the street. So, you know, report came out here in, in, in Melbourne in our local paper yesterday that unless you're earning over $110,000 a year, you can't afford to rent within 13 kilometres of the city. <laughs> Yeah. You know, so the ordinary person sees that and goes, okay, this stuff is now affecting me. Now, people who didn't care about Syria and ISIS and, you know, even global warming, all of a sudden when you're paying huge amounts for fuel in your car, mm. you can't make your mortgage payments, you can't pay your rent, this is where it's kicking home. And so this is causing a crisis of faith in people. Um, you know, that's essentially you know, a very long answer to what you just asked, mm -hmm. but that's the story of how the the narrative that was strong in the world is dying. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. I saw, sorry, I saw an interesting um, Reddit post yesterday. Someone just said, um, "Millennials endured Y2K, 9/11, 20 year wars in the Middle East, the Great Recession, a once in a hundred years pandemic, a Trump presidency, and now a potential second Trump presidency, where he's promised revenge and retribution." All before we turned 40. This is my last battle. After that, Zoomers can deal with whatever happens next. <laughs> I, I, I agree with all that, except Y2K. What? Nothing <laughs> happening? I know. Everyone like, just like, freaked out for nothing. Yeah. But I think it was just an interesting sentiment of probably what a lot of people, a lot of millennials perhaps feel in that kind of nihilist. Mm. I'm out. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and so and, and interestingly, so in the past, like you could cocoon was the word that they used. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and yes. you know, and that you could cocoon somewhat when the economy's working okay, but yes. when significant problems exist when the pro when the issues get economical and particularly around things like, you know, in Australia, you know, Australia is we've talked about, you know, very, you know, uh, high standard of living and all of a sudden people are struggling with food insecurity. Yeah. You know, and uh that's happening all over the place. So I think you know, as these problems become more intractable and entrenched, uh, you're going to see a questioning. Yes. Um, yeah. 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 So to come back to that McCrindle quote mm. that you referenced, it and they they pose and posit that this could be an evangelistic opportunity. Like, yes. So what does that look like for us as the yeah. church to to be aware of and yeah. and looking for the for for people that are exploring. Well, it's it's interesting. Like, okay, so I'll begin with a story to answer that. And I don't know when it was. It was in the two thousands, and um, I was at Flinders Street Station, which is our main station here in Melbourne. Mm -hmm. And uh, I walked along the platform, and my heart sank. And the reason was it was it was you know commuter hour. And I saw multiple people reading Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion. Mm -hmm. And you saw after the attacks of September 11th, the new atheist movement begin. 
And, uh, you know, Richard Dawkins, Dennett, um, Christopher Hitchens, you know, all these, all these guys became, you know, sort of rock stars, really, intellectual rock stars. And there was this sense that, you know, September 11th had happened and the return of terrorism. And, and part of the, one of the initial stories then, because of what I, the story I just told of like, there's going to be hope, mm. the yeah. enlightenment, the values of the West, mm. liberalism can get us a better world. And then hang on, we're getting attacked by guys from Afghanistan with box cutters. Um, oh, what are we going to blame? It's religious fundamentalism. So the answer then was the issue of the enlightenment was that we just need to get even less religious. So let's double down on this, you know. Mm. So you know, one of the one of the people in that mix was uh, Ayan Hersi uh, Ali, who was I think Somalian uh, Muslim, um, who you know basically renounced her, her Muslim faith and became an atheist. And she became particularly for that crew um, as they did their talk shows and books and conferences. And I mean, they appeared at Glastonbury or some some big music festival. I remember one year, um, she sort of became the poster child of you know someone who come from the two-thirds world, you know, mm-hmm. come from Africa and had particularly come from Islam and, and renounced Islam. This was evidence of, you know, someone who is rationally, you know, you know sort of uh, come out of that world. So she was one of the sort of new atheists. But fascinatingly, in the last week, she published an article, I think it was in Unheard, and she announced she'd become a Christian. And this is really fascinating. And some of the stuff we're talking about, um, I'm just going to read a quote from the article. So basically she says, so what changed? She talked about being part of the new atheists and how she sort of enjoyed it and mm-hmm. so on and, you know, sort of gave her fame. Uh, but she's not anymore. She's not an atheist. And she said, so what has changed? Why do I call myself a Christian now? Part of the answer is global. Western civilization is under threat from three different but related forces. The resurgence of great power authoritarianism and expansionism in the forms of the Chinese Communist Party and Vladimir Putin's Russia. Secondly, the rise of global Islam, which threatens to mobilize a vast population against the West. And the viral spread of woke ideology, which is eating into the moral fiber of the next generation. We endeavor to fend off these threats with modern secular tools, military, economic, diplomatic, technological efforts to defeat, bribe, persuade, appease, or surveil. And yet with every round of conflict, we find ourselves losing ground. We're either running out of, we're either running out of money with our national debt in the tens of trillions of dollars, or we're losing our lead in the technological race with China. But we can't fight off these formidable forces unless we can answer the question, what is it that unites us? The response that God is dead seems insufficient. So too does the attempt to find solace in the rules-based international liberal order. The only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, what's fascinating is what you're seeing here is someone who's making the intellectual journey that we're talking about here. Mm. Uh, Someone who had hope in sort of the Western values, you know, sort of in a sense jumped on board the Western story that things were going to get better through Western smarts and this liberal international order. Who's realizing that it's not, that all these crises that we're talking about are too powerful, that we don't have the responses ourselves, and then turns to Christianity because they see some of the things that they value in the legacy of the Judeo-Christian tradition. And, you know, Tom Holland's book, Dominion, um, you know, a lot of people, she references in it, which is a book about how so much in the West that we take for granted, even he says values of people who don't like Christianity, he even says woke has sort of Christian roots, really comes from that Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, and But this is really interesting because what it raises is a possibility that I don't think many people take seriously at this moment, but I just want to put out there. Now, I do have to just come clean and, and we got some messages of, of people who'd set a timer for a year 
uh, <laughs> on my TikTok will not be around. It'll be banned in America in a year. And, yep, I'll put my hand up and say I was wrong. And Daniel was one of those people. <laughs> he, you know, rocked up and he's like, oh, I've got a reminder on my phone. <laughs> and some other listeners did. Yep. Uh, but I will, you know, we can put in the show notes, there is an article about uh, the billionaire who's keeping TikTok on your phone. So there's been quite a significant, uh, there's been huge momentum to destroy TikTok. And I wonder whether it's still going to happen. So it's going to happen. I just had the time frame wrong. <laughs> um, let me just say that. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, one of the predictions I'm going to put out there is that we could, to our great surprise, see a significant return or interest in Christianity, but possibly it could be of a more political or cultural variety. And so one thing that we, is, could be unexpected is the return of cultural Christianity en masse in the West. Interesting. Um, mm -hmm. Now, we've seen some of that in Central Europe, in places mm -hmm. like Hungary and Poland and, um, you know, uh, Slovakia, places like this where uh, as they sort of moved into this post-communist era, they didn't want to go – they saw that some of the excesses and problems of liberalism. They saw capitalism had some, some problems as well. They didn't want to go back to Soviet sort of, you know, control. So they sort of returned to some of their Christian roots, but possibly – this is not everyone yeah. – but possibly in a sort of cultural form as an identity. So you've got lots of people sort of sprouting where, you know, we're Christians versus the sort of evil degenerates in Western Europe, but we don't really go to church, you know. Sure. And yeah. I think something like that could happen in the West – and it could happen in very surprising forms. And the fact that we have a new atheist who's headed in this direction is really interesting. Justin Brearley, who does the Unbelievable podcast, has got a new podcast on sort of, I think it's called The Rise and Fall of the New Atheism, you know, and even Dawkins and Stephen Fry and these characters who haven't become Christians, but they sort of make concessions now that they're cultural Christians, which is really interesting. Mm -hmm. And Stephen Fry is defending the singing of hymns and all this sort of stuff, which is fascinating. Um, so we could see that. So we need to be prepared there just because it seems like, you know, people panicking about secularism. And I think it's still good. There's never going to be one thing. There's going to be multiple things. Now, later in the article, we were chatting about this before, mm. um, you know, uh, you know, she speaks about the fact that, you know, she started going to church and there does seem to be some solace she's finding at a personal existential level. I'm not yes. sure if you've got that other part uh, of the quote there. Yes. Um I discover a little more at church each Sunday, she wrote, arguing that she has found a better way to manage the challenges of existence than either Islam or unbelief had to offer. And also mentions um, the only credible answer, I believe, lies in our desire to uphold the legacy of Judeo-Christian tradition, which is the end of the quote that you mentioned before. But then it goes on to say, um, she said the legacy includes an elaborate set of, an, of ideas and institutions designed to safeguard humanity, life, freedom and dignity. Mm. So we don't know where her heart is at and, and I don't want to judge her and, and my hope is that, you know, even if she's begun in that place of maybe just philosophical, you know, uh, C.S. Lewis talked about, you know, if you read his journey, mm. uh, you know, he it sort of grew his faith and and had different forms and took a, a you know, you know, began, he talked about he didn't believe in the afterlife when he first became a Christian, but it grew, you know. Um, so, you know, that's my hope and prayer for her. Um, but I think I just want to say that, I think what we need to do, I, I think of the story, uh, I think it's in, is it Numbers 13, where, you know, the spies are sent out into the promised mm -hmm. land. And, you know, most of the spies see the giants that are in the land, yeah. which are the challenges, you yeah. know, and the negativities. And I think particularly as we 
come to the end of the year and we move into 2024, I think have this sense like 2024 is going to be not so. Like, <laughs> you know, the US election, I mean, I just don't can't even wrap my head around it. We've also got the Taiwanese election, okay. which is going to be very, very fascinating yeah. um, with the direction of what happens there and, and China's interest in Taiwan, you know, being reunited to the mainland and so on. Mm. You know, real global flashpoint. Uh, you know, we have possible, you know, all the things we've talked about, possible intensification of war in the Middle East, uh, possible general election in Britain. There's going to be a lot of crazy stuff. We're going to have no shortage of stuff for rebuilds to talk through <laughs> and, and narrate <laughs> next year. Yeah. And a lot of it, I'm just going to say now, is going to be dismaying mm. if your hope is in that story that I outlined earlier that we as humans can move things towards a better world in our own strength. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what we need to be aware of that we're going to see increasing numbers. Is it going to be thousands? I don't know. Might it be handfuls? Yes. Uh, I don't know the scale and numbers and I'm not predicting some revival uh, of those who are completely you know, dismayed by the Western order and watch the news and then pick up a Bible. But what we're seeing is some movement. Mm. We are seeing some movement. And what I love in the McCrindle quote is the fact that it doesn't just say the church as in the church universal. What it actually says is, um, uh, you know, the – Resurgence of trust in religious institutions reflects a renewed quest for meaning. So we're seeing that. Mm -hmm. People are wanting values. One of the interesting things that's happened in Australia is we have, you know, government secular schools, um, but then Christian schools are just growing at a mm -hmm. rapid rate. Muslim mm -hmm. schools, Jewish schools, because people are going, even with our faith, oh, there's no values in society. I want values. So people are looking for values and community. Uh, offering these institutions an opportunity to engage with the evolving belief and needs of Australians. I see this as a neighbourhood level approach. You know? mm. And I think, again, too, like one thing I get frustrated at is I think there's this element where we, you know, talk of the the church universal and do we believe in that 100%, but, you know, as the church universal needs to do these things. Well, you know, well, the church universal is is the average person, let me just tell you now, listening to this podcast, because this is the average church, it's probably 50 to 200 people, you know, like armed with some teacups and, <laughs> you know, one service and, you know. Ethelu plays the organ and then there's the contemporary meeting. This is the reality of most people in church, right? Um, ordinary people with all the challenges um, and so on. But what you may get is people coming through the door who are interested in a different story mm. and relationally we're equipped to this because we're on the ground, you know. And so I think part of this as well is, you know, yes, we've, you know, obviously I follow the news um, with an eagle eye, Um but then also there's what's happening relationally in the web of, of just human connectivity. Mm. And in the webs of human connectivity, it could be as you drop your kids off at school, it could be chatting to someone on the train. Uh, there are people who are starting to question. So let's not let the story of secularism tell us that people are not interested. There's going to be increasing numbers of people who are interested. You know, you may find yourself in an evangelistic conversation with someone. Do you want to tell the story? Did we tell the story last week about you buying beer? And the conversation oh, that you had. That, yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't think we did tell it. Tell either. us the story, Daniel. This is an example of what I'm talking about. <laughs> oh, I was out um, having a pastoral meeting at a, a very classic Melbourne, not classic, but it was like <laughs> a wine bar slash cafe thing having lunch there. Um, and then I was, uh, the guy I was catching up with headed off and then I went to, um, had a craft beer fridge and I'm an avid craft beer drinker. So I grabbed a, grabbed a, um, to, uh, some craft beer and put it on the counter and the guy behind the counter, maybe like 40s or 50s, kind of very like directly, kind of looked at me and pointed at me. He's like, what do you do for work? I was like, oh, okay, hi. Um, and I said, oh, I'm a church pastor. He's like, oh, I knew it. Um, 
And then he goes on to say, oh, one of the younger guys that works for me, he's a 23-year-old guy. He's just gone back to church and he's loving it. And I've, I grew up in church, I went to Catholic church when I was a boy, but haven't been for years. But something's happening and something, something's going on that I, that I haven't seen before. Um, and I kind of yeah went on to kind of talk about, hey, Jesus. I think people coming back to the person of Jesus and not just a um, religious kind of thing. And anyway, it was, it was a great conversation. I ended up inviting him along to church and haven't seen him yet, but who knows? You never know. But yeah, it was just a really out of the blue kind of <laughs> interaction. And, yeah. and we're hearing, I think we're trying to capture in this is we're hearing this. Yeah. Know, yeah. Is it a flood yet? Yeah. No. Yeah. But are there some light sprinkles of rain? Yes. Yeah. And I think what he said there is really interesting. You know, there's something happening. Yes. So, yes, next year is going to be crazy. Yes, there's all kinds of tumults in the culture. Yes, the global situation looks fraught and tense. But also here in the midst of this, and Twitter's not going to tell you this, uh, the news is not going to tell you this, but what that guy said, there's something happening. Mm -hmm. And the fact that a bloke in a craft, whatever, buying, selling your craft beer who doesn't go to church recognises that, I think we need to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So I think, you know, just as, you know, the scouts went into the land and saw the giants, many people are looking at giants at the moment and are there problems? Yep, leaders falling, church stuffing up, 100%. All that's happening. But also Jacob and Caleb go in and they see the grapes and the fruit mm. and the potential and they're like, yeah, let's go. So I think my encouragement as we end is be Caleb and uh, Joshua, mm. um, look for the potential. There are plenty of giants in the land, but also God calls us to go into the land and look for the fruit and look for the flourishing in the midst of it. And I think there's just a slight hint of an atmospheric change, which is going to bear fruit. Let's mm. be attentive to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, um, Mark, for that. Just a, a heads up for our listeners that we are planning to do a few more episodes for the year. Um, and we're going to be focusing on how to lead your, how to lead the church to renewal. So focusing on some practical things that we as leaders within uh, the context of, of churches and probably even beyond the church um, can do and consider and um, look forward to, um, particularly to set up well for 2024. So we're looking forward to doing that. If you want to know um, anything more, sort of a behind-the-scenes chat for uh, this episode, we have subscriber chats that we send out after each episode. So you can head to um, our website, rebuilders.co, and you can subscribe to our mailing list and we'll send out the email a few days after the episode is released. So please feel free to subscribe there. Um, but until next time, it's been a pleasure.